Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider this your word, the word given by the head of the church Christ through his spirit, as he carried along these godly men, as they transcribed what was written for the sake of your church, not only in the first century, but your church in all generations. I pray, Father, we pray that that same spirit, your Holy Spirit, would be at work giving our minds illumination, helping us to understand your word helping our eyes to see and our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to His church. And that in this, Your Son might be exalted. Father, we pray that You would make us ever mindful of the fact that Your Son is speaking by His Spirit in His Word to us. May You be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. I kind of wanted to start with a, a bit of a question, or maybe a couple of questions. What do you think happens here on a Sunday morning? In other words, what do you come to church expecting? Why do you come and what do you come expecting? In other words, why are you here? Perhaps you're here because you believe you're commanded to be. That's true. Do not forsake the gathering yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Right? You're commanded to be. Perhaps you're here because you need some encouragement. You need some seasonable word to provide balm for your soul. That's good. Maybe life is just at a point where you need to hear something to encourage you, to strengthen you. And the Holy Spirit is your encourager, and He encourages you by His Word. So that's a good reason as well to be here. Perhaps you're here just because you love to learn. You love to learn, and, and you hope that I will be of some help to you in that regard. You know that you don't want to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but you want to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so you come here to hear the word preached to you so that your mind might be renewed. And that's good. Perhaps you're here because you love to be around other believers. You know, even if you don't love to be around other believers because you have social anxiety maybe, you know that you need to be around other believers. 
to be encouraged and built up. That's good. Perhaps you're here because you were dragged here by others. Not as good, but still not bad. Glad you're here. Perhaps you're here because you're curious what this Christianity thing is all about. Regardless of why you're here, we're glad you came. But I want you to know why I think you ought to come here. Not just why you did, but why you ought to come. Because Jesus is here. Ministering to you by his spirit through the ministry of the word in his church. And if the Lord Jesus is here to minister to you, the question is, where else would you want to be? What is happening out there that's better than Jesus ministering to you in here? I bring this up as an implication of what we've been studying the last several weeks in Hebrews. The Son of God became a man to redeem us, to save us. But I want to push that a step further. The Son of God became a man or shared our nature that he might redeem us and that he might call us. Yes, he redeems us, but he also calls us. In other words, yes, he came. He kept the law in our place. Both its precept, the command of the law, and its penalty, what's due to us for our violation of the law. He kept both those things in our place. Yes, he atoned for our sins At the cross. That's all true. But that work isn't any help to you if you're not aware of it. He didn't just come to redeem us, He came to call us, to declare the truth to us, to proclaim to us. So these are the two implications of the uh, two implications of the incarnation of the Son of God that I want to look at today. First, the the Son shares our humanity to redeem us. And second, the Son shares our humanity to call us. So he shares our humanity to redeem us. He shares our humanity to call us. So let me look at those two points. The first one somewhat briefly because we've spent really the last three weeks on it. But the Son shares our humanity to redeem us. Look with me at verse 10, chapter 2. The Son became a man to purchase our redemption. Chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he... For whom and by whom all things exist, that's speaking of the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, that's his goal, what he's doing. It is fitting that he should make the founder or the perfecter or the captain of their salvation, that would be the Son, perfect through suffering, that he would make the founder of our salvation consecrated. He would consecrate him to his work of saving us through suffering, the suffering namely of death on the cross. Now look what it says. For he who sanctifies, that's the Son who's incarnate, he who sanctifies, he is the one who sanctifies us, makes us holy, etc. And those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source, I think better translated, or all of one nature. In other words, we're all 
of human nature. He was God who took on humanity. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, I won't spend as much time on these texts in verse 10 and 11 because I've done so the last few weeks. But I do have a question I haven't touched on much that I want to touch on briefly, which is how do these following texts in verse 12 and 13 support the point that the Son shared our humanity to redeem us? In other words, if I'm contending that in verse 10 and 11 we're being told that the Son became incarnate and shared our human nature in order to redeem us, so that the Father, the Father sent him in order to bring many sons to glory. If that's my contention, the question is, how then do these texts in verse 12 and 13 support that contention? Well, let's look at them briefly. Verse 12, saying, now notice this first text, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. Jesus, the Son, became man, became man to tell of the Father's name to his brothers so that in the congregation, you see that word in the midst of the congregation? That word can just be translated church. It's a little more clear that way, right? In the midst of the church, in the assembly of the saints, the congregation, the church. In the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. Jesus became man so that, so that he can tell of the name of the Father to his brothers so that he can sing the Father's praise in the church. That's a quotation of Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to Psalm 22 right now because we're going to look at Psalm 22 a little bit more um, as we go through the sermon. But, but that's a quotation from Psalm 22. And the question is, did Jesus, in fact, do this? Did he proclaim the name of the Father in his incarnation? And the answer is yes. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. He took on humanity and dwelt among us. And notice this. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. And from verse 16, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, or the only begotten God. It's the language here. Who is at the Father's side or the Father's bosom. He has made him known. So who makes known the Father to his brothers? The Son does. How does he do that? He became incarnate to that end, that he might make known the Father to his brothers. So we know that Jesus reveals the Father. He proclaimed his love and his grace. It is Jesus who says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whose lips did that come from? The incarnate son's lips. He declared the father's name among his brothers. He did. Not only that, did he sing? It says in Hebrews 2 that it, he says here that what? In the midst of the congregation of the church, I will sing your praise. You know what's interesting? It's a little detail that we don't pay a lot of attention to. But in Matthew 26, 
at the Last Supper when Jesus gathers with the disciples and um, at Passover and teaches them uh, what we now call the Lord's Supper, teaches them that or gives them that ordinance or institution. At that point, it says in Matthew 26 and verse 30 that Jesus sang a hymn to the Father with his disciples. Matthew 26, 30. He sang a hymn. He preached the Father's name, his loving and gracious character. He sang the Father's praise, leading his disciples in the midst of the congregation in song. Jesus did that. The incarnate Son did that. That's what the author of Hebrews is driving at. He became man, shared our nature, that he might do this. Look what it says in in Hebrews 2, verse 13. And again, Hebrews 2, verse 13. I will put my trust in him. This is a citation likely of David's Psalm 18. That Jesus is likely citing Psalm 18. Now I want you to hear what Jesus would be citing. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Here's Jesus singing Psalm 18 as the incarnate son. What's he saying? I put my hope in him. I put my trust in him. Now, now why does the author of Hebrews give us that citation? That's a psalm of David. David sings that psalm typologically. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> David sings that song himself because he himself is putting his trust and hope in the Lord. But David is not just singing that song for himself. He's singing that song as a type of the Christ, the Messiah, the true Davidic king, David's greater son, who would one day sing that song. I put my trust in him. The question is, as the incarnate son, as man, he must trust in the Father, thus the reference to the fact that Jesus is trusting in him. Now here's the question. Did Jesus trust in the Lord? Yes. He trusted him to the end. Luke 23, 46, on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Trusted him to the very end. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus, as the Son of God, in his, if you will, Godhead, Godhead, does not need to trust God. He is God. But Jesus, as the incarnate Son, as man, trusts in the Father to the end. Then we get this next phrase, and again, look at Hebrews 2, verse 13. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now that's a citation from Isaiah 8.18. And it's actually Isaiah talking about the fact that he as the prophet of God 
will trust in the Lord during a difficult time in Israel's history. Not only will he trust in the Lord during this difficult time in Israel's history, but he and the children God has given him, those who are receiving the message of the prophet Isaiah, who are following the truth, they will also trust in the Lord in this difficult time. And that's no mistake that right after Isaiah 8 comes Isaiah 9, which speaks of this virgin who will give birth to a son. But here's what I want you to understand about that. Isaiah himself is trusting the Lord, he and his children as a prophet. He's doing that himself, but he's also doing that typologically. In other words, Christ is the one ultimately who has been given these, these children. He did gather those whom God had given him and will continue to do so. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17. John 17, when Jesus had spoken this word, these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the wor- their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as if you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. In other words, <clears throat> he shared our humanity in order to fulfill the mission for which he was sent, to redeem his people, to redeem his brothers, and thus, to bring many sons to glory. To bring many sons to glory. But that leads to our second point. The Son doesn't just share our humanity to call us to redemption, or to, excuse me, to redeem us, but He shares our humanity to call us to that redemption, to call us to it. Last week I spent a lot of time talking about Jesus being a priest. He is our priest who sanctifies us. He is the one who sanctifies. He's our priest who sanctifies us. This week, I want to recognize that he is our prophet who calls us. He's our prophet who calls us. I want you to understand that his priestly work must be made known, announced, heralded, proclaimed, preached. So look again at verse 12. Hebrews 2 and verse 12. Saying, I will tell of your name. I'll proclaim it. I'll make it known. 
I'll message it. I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And I already said that um, David is singing here as a type of the Christ. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. But I want you to hear that. And I want to stop and consider this verse for a moment because it is absolutely stunning to consider what Jesus is saying here. To consider what the incarnate Son of God is saying here. It comes from Psalm uh, 22, so I want to look there. Jason read that this morning, but I ask you to turn to Psalm 22. And I want to look at Psalm 22 together briefly. And I want you to see the context of this psalm and what it is that Jesus is proclaiming and singing. I want you to understand that this is no surprise for a Hebrew Christian um, as they come to Psalm 22 to discover its contents. And I, I say it's no surprise to them because they regu- regularly sang the Psalter, the 150 Psalms. They're familiar. So when Psalm 22, 22 gets picked up by the author in Hebrews, they understand what psalm that's coming from and what the rest of the content of that psalm is. And so we often, unfortunately, don't have those psalms committed to memory as they would because they sang them. And so we need to go back and refresh our memory a bit. So Psalm 22 What I want to point out first is that from verses 1 through verse 21, we read of Jesus' priestly work, his humiliation, suffering, and death. That's what we read in the first 21 verses, the priestly work of Jesus. You're going to say, isn't this David singing about his own suffering? Yes, but this psalm is then put in the mouth of Christ, and so it's David singing his own suffering as the Davidic king as a type of the Christ who would come the ultimate fulfillment of this. And it's put in his mouth. And it's the first 21 verses are about his priestly work of humiliation, suffering, and death for us. Look look there at verse 1. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, I don't know what the doe of the dawn is, so don't ask me, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, have you heard that in Jesus' mouth before? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Listen, this is not David expressing a lack of faith in the Lord, nor is this Christ expressing a lack of faith in the Lord. I'm crying to you, but I don't hear an answer. I'm calling to you at night, and I I find no rest. It's expressing faith. Precisely that's what it's expressing, because though there is no answer, and though he can get no rest, he continues to cry to him. Where are you? That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the Father turns his wrath on him. He continues to trust in him to the end. Now look what it goes on. Drop down to verse 9. He goes between complaint and sort of 
the answer to the complaint, but I'm just going to skip through some texts here. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Trusted on you from the beginning, Father. Be not far from me. There are none to help me. Go down to verse 16. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Have you guys seen this language in the New Testament applied to Jesus? This is his song. He's the one singing this psalm ultimately. But we see a change. As you go from verses 1 through 22 to verse or 21 to verse 22, suddenly in verse 22 there's a change in this psalm. We see a change from humiliation, the humiliation of the son, to his exaltation. We see a change from his priestly work of suffering on our behalf to his prophetic work in making known what God has done. Look at verse 22 and let's see what Christ now sings. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation or the church. I will praise you. By the way, folks, those who say the word church is not in the Old Testament, um, I, I'm not sure where they get that idea, but that's nonsense. The word church in the Old Testament appears um, somewhere around 100 plus times. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament before Christ came around, that word ekklesia, which we get in the New Testament for the word church, that word is what's translating the Hebrew word, the kahal of Yahweh, um, in every instance in the Old Testament, referring to the congregation or the church of the people. That's why when Jesus says, I will build my church, the apostles don't stop and go, what's a church? Right? They understand what he's talking about. Okay, In the midst of the church, I will praise you. Notice what he's singing of. He's singing of the glory of God and his loving kindness in his saving grace and mercy. Look what he goes on. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. See, the Father heard your cries. This is picking up um, mirrored language from Exodus chapter 2, where the Father hears the cries of Israel and sends a Redeemer for them. He heard you, and he sent a Redeemer. That's what Jesus is telling his brothers in the church. The Father's heard your cry for redemption, and he sent you a Redeemer. It's me. Look what he goes on to say. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, the great assembly of the saints, the great church. My vows I'll perform before those who fear him. So he sings of the glory of God in his loving kindness, in his saving grace and mercy. He sings 
the salvation and joy of his people. Look at verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. He's just singing of the salvation and the joy of his people in all the earth. And then he sings of the spread of the gospel across not just the whole of the earth, but across all generations. Look what he goes on to say in verse 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim the righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You see, the Lord heard your cry. He answered and sent you a redeemer. That's me. I've come to redeem you. And I'm proclaiming his great name in the congregation. He hears you. He loves you. He is gracious and merciful. And he sent me to purchase that grace for you. And you need to know about him. And all I want to do is sing about him in front of you and proclaim him to you. I want you to know who my father is. And I don't want just you to know it. I want the whole of the earth to know it. And I don't just want every nation and tribe and tongue to know it. I want your children to know it. And so when Peter stands at Pentecost and preaches at the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the ascension of Christ, and they're cut to the heart and say, what shall we do? And he looks at them and he says, brothers, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. And for your children, your offspring, your posterity, and for those who are far off, all the nations. Believe. That's what's happening, folks. Here's what I want you to note. Christ is the preacher. Christ is the song leader. We call it a worship leader. It's a little bizarre term when we say the guy leading music is the worship leader. Because um, it's, it's a pretty big task for him to take on. He directs all of your worship, right? It's, so we, 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 it's, it's odd. He's leading us in a particular kind of worship, the worship of song. Jason, when he stands up, is leading us in a particular kind of worship, the worship of the public reading of Scripture or the worship of prayer. When I preach, or any of us come here and preach, we're worship, leading you in a kind of worship, the hearing of the Word of God preached. When we distribute the Lord's Supper or we baptize, we're leading you in a kind of worship. When you meet in your small groups, you're in a kind of worship. You follow me on that? But here's what you need to understand in all of that. Jesus is the leader of worship. He is the preacher. He is the song leader. How do you receive any benefit from the person and work of Christ if you do not not know who he is and what he's done? You can't. Thus, he's pleased to preach. And he's pleased to sing. He is the prophet. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. He is the prophet. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, long ago. 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Who preached to you? Jesus. He is the messenger. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, Jesus. He's the apostle. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, the one who sent to proclaim. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He shares our nature to be both priest and prophet. He also shares our nature to be king. You can see that in in chapter 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He is the priest who sanctifies us. He is the prophet who declares the truth to us. He is the king who destroys the devil and delivers us from lifelong slavery to sin and death. He became man to be that. We saw Christ proclaiming and singing among his own disciples, and he continues to do the same. But how? How does Christ continue to preach and sing? How does Christ do that now? That leads to our application for today. Really the question, how does Christ call you? We understand how he called his disciples. He stood there and said, you, come to me. (laughs) Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. We see that. But how does he call you? Again, if you pay attention to Hebrews 2.12, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. He is the one who's always doing it. On that day when you first believed, whether it was while your parents were opening the word to you for the first time, um, maybe even opening the word to you when you were just too old, to, I mean, too young to even remember, or you were in Sunday school and the Sunday school teacher said something and, and as they were teaching you the word, it suddenly clicked and you believed, or you were in a worship service under the preaching of the word and you believed or you're sitting across the table from a friend as he pointed you to Jesus and you believed, or you were at some kind of evangelistic event, it really doesn't matter the location or the age. What I want you to understand is the day you first believed, on that day, it was Jesus who called you. No matter who else was speaking. Sunday school teacher, mom, pastor, Coworker, friend, it was Jesus who was speaking. He's the one who called you. Who told you the Father's loving and gracious name? Jesus did. Jesus did. Who led you in singing God's praise for his sovereign grace and mercy? Jesus did. The incarnate Son, Jesus, did this great work. He does this work through the ministry of the word 
being proclaimed in and by his spirit-indwelled church and her ministers. That's why when, when Luke starts the book of Acts, after Jesus died and risen from the dead, he says to Theophilus, in the first book, O Theophilus, speaking about the gospel of Luke, I told you all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now in this book of Acts, what's he pointing his finger to? I'm going to be telling you all that Jesus continues to do and teach. How? By the pouring out of his spirit upon his church as they proclaim his word. Listen, Sovereign Grace, as we gather here today, Jesus loves to declare the Father's name to you. He loves to sing the Father's praise among you. Charles Spurgeon commented on this. He said, Not in a little household gathering merely does our Lord resolve to proclaim his Father's love, but in the great assemblies of the saints and the general assembly and church of the firstborn, this he is always doing by his representatives who are the heralds of salvation and labor to praise God. In the great universal church, Jesus is the one authoritative teacher and all others. Me, TJ when he's up here leading you in song, Jason when he's leading you in uh, prayer and reading a scripture, all others are but echoes of his voice. Jesus declares a divine name so that God may be praised. The church continually magnifies Yahweh for revealing himself in the person of Jesus, and Jesus himself leads the song and is both leader and preacher in his church. I'm not the preacher in our church. Did you know that? Jordan or TJ or whoever's up here leading song is not the song leader in our church. Jason, when he leads prayer, is not the intercessor who leads prayer in our church. Do you know who intercedes for you and leads all the intercession of God's saints? Jesus does. Do you know who leads the singing of the congregation of the saints? Jesus does. Do you know who declares the word of God through the preaching of the word of God? Jesus does. Inasmuch, inasmuch as we rightly declare his word, he is at work by his spirit. Now listen, inasmuch as I'm in error, that isn't Jesus. Inasmuch as we rightly declare his word, he is at work by his spirit and through his church to lead us in worship and mission. This is what Paul's getting at, for example, in Romans 10, when he says, all who call in the name of, verse 13, all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call in the one who they have not believed? And, and how are they to believe in the one whom they've never heard? And how do they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And he pluralizes those making us the ambassadors of Christ. But you need to know that comes from Isaiah 52. And the one who has the beautiful feet, who brings the good news there, is the Messiah, Jesus. And we as ambassadors are now standing in his stead, preaching the good news of Jesus. And when he goes on in verse 17, he says, For faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That isn't 
properly translated the word about Christ, that is the word Christ himself is speaking. When the preacher of the gospel opens the word of God to the people of God, the one who drives faith into your hearts is Christ, not me. Christ speaks into your hearts. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20, Paul can speak of his work as an ambassador of Christ, this gospel work, and he can say this, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. Hear that? God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. You know when you share the gospel with somebody, you want to know why there's a spiritual war that is immediately engaged that scares you about what they'll think about you that may make them dislike you or respond well to you depending on what's happening. You want to know why? Because it isn't just words you're throwing out there. When you open your mouth about the gospel, Jesus, the Son of God, begins to preach and war breaks out for the heart and mind of that person. When the missionary goes to the field, there's a spiritual battle happening. That's why Paul can say that God is always leading us in triumphal procession in 2 Corinthians in chapter 2 toward the end. And he can go on to say that he's an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. Because when he spreads the gospel word, when he heralds it and proclaims it, a spiritual battle is happening right there. Because Jesus is speaking by his spirit through his word. Ultimately, Jesus is the preacher, and ultimately, Jesus is the leader of our song. That's why Paul can go on to say something like, um, don't be drunk with alcohol, right? You guys know this. Don't be drunk with alcohol. Um, and, and the with there probably is better by. It's not, Paul's point isn't that he doesn't want your belly all filled up with a whole bunch of booze. His point is he doesn't want you to become inebriated by the agency of alcohol. Alcohol does the makes you inebriated. Don't become drunk by alcohol, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit fills you with? Next phrase. When the Holy Spirit fills you, what's the next phrase? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. You know what's happening there? That's why you can say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in Colossians 3 in the parallel passage. Because you know what dwells in you when the Spirit of God is filling you? The Word of God. Christ speaks into your heart, and you burst out in song. When the Holy Spirit fills you, it fills you with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Christ is the head of his church and dwells his church by his Spirit, speaking to his church through his Word. That's precisely why I think John Owen is right when he speaks about our worship services and says the following. Look what he says about our worship services. All praying, all preaching, all administration of the ordinances, that would be like baptism and the Lord's Supper, all our faith, all our obedience, if ordered aright, are nothing but giving glory to God for his love and grace in Christ Jesus in a due and acceptable manner. And this is that which ought to be in our design in all our worship of God, especially in what we perform in the church, to set forth his praise, to declare his name, to give glory unto him by believing, and the profession of our faith 
is the end of all we do. That has major implications for the work of the ministry. I think Owen's right. I think that's precisely why Paul speaks of his work as a gospel minister in the way that he does. Paul will say things like that he has never been a peddler of the word of God. That he never participates in tampering with God's word. He doesn't just make the word say what he already wants to say and sell it to a crowd. Doesn't tamper with God's word. He doesn't peddle it and sell it to people. He never approaches preaching with worldly wisdom. He never seeks to entertain. He intentionally proclaims Christ and him crucified. He always proclaims Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that he may present everyone mature in Christ. He never turns to disgraceful and underhanded ways, but is committed to the sacred charge of preaching the gospel, of making an open statement of the truth. Paul believes that all Christian preaching is done. Now listen to his, how he charges Timothy and what he believes about preaching. All Christian preaching is done in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is a judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And therefore, Paul believes the gospel minister ought to preach the word. Be ready in season. And out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. See, that's why we come here on Sunday mornings. To hear from our Lord Jesus about God's great redeeming love for us. We don't gather here to sing to our Lord Jesus about our great love for him. We gather to hear from him about the Father's great redeeming love for us. To sing along with him. That's why we gather with other believers to be in the word and prayer. Not just here, but throughout the week. That's why we sing and pray and publicly read the word and participate in the sacraments and preach. Listen, the reason we come here and we do any of this is because we want to hear from Jesus and we want to be led in song by him. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would understand this great grace and benefit and blessing to the church that we are not only redeemed by your son, that he came not only to redeem us, became man not only to that purpose as our priest, but he came as our prophet to make known the word of the gospel, this good news of what he's accomplished for us. To apply it to our hearts, to call us effectually to salvation through the preaching of the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we would gather here with a proper sense of the fact that our Lord Jesus has come to preach, has come to sing, to tell of your name to his brothers, and in the congregation, the church, to sing your praise. May we join him in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.